0: The Corinthian culture in the time of Paul placed a a great value on education and intellect. And so does ours. There are times it seems that that we think that college for all is the solution to all of our problems, or higher education is the solution to all of our problems. That might be a bit naive. As time marches on, it appears as though higher education might not be the panacea that Many of us thought it would be. But having said that, I must admit that I appreciate education. I appreciate those with a high intellect, and especially those that have done something with a high intellect. I can't knock college. I've spent twelve years of my life in college, either college or seminary. And my life now is one of constant study. Now, the, the lion's share of my time is spent in the study of the Word of God, but but I also like to seek in a few other subjects when I can. I read as much as my eyes will allow. I enjoy listening to books on tape while I'm driving. I like to learn. I'm currently reading Martin Gilbert's Churchill in America and also his very fine work on the history of the Israeli, Israeli state. I just finished Guy Kawasaki's Enchantment, whenever there's a new Daniel Silver, Vince Flynn novel. I love to read those as well and I'm doing my best to learn French. Now, my friends think that I'm getting in touch with my feminine side for doing that. I don't know if I have a feminine side, but, but, uh, but I can order in French now. Now, listen, language specialists say that it's very difficult to learn another language after you're 50, and I'm out to prove them wrong. I want to prove them wrong about that. I don't tell you this to bore you, but simply to say, I do enjoy learning new things. I enjoy it very much. So, nothing that is said this morning should be taken to mean that education is bad or that there's anything wrong with the intellect. Far from it. I'm all for maximizing intellectual potential. The passage we consider this morning, unfortunately, though, has been grossly misapplied by a particular group within Christianity. And as within any misapplication, it's not been helpful. Misapplications are never helpful. I'm going to alter my usual approach this morning and warn against the misapplication before we get into the passage itself. I know it's a bit unorthodox, but bear with me. I think this is the best way to do it. Some have taken 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18-31 through 31, to be an argument against the intellect, against education, and against reason. That is not the case. Those who hold that view have been sloppy in their interpretation. And it follows naturally that if you're sloppy in your interpretation, you're going, to be, you're going to find yourself with a faulty application. And that's what they've done. Their application has been to adopt an anti-intellectual posture. And they appear dead set on making themselves appear to be or look as foolish as they possibly can. They don't need to study the Word. The Spirit is their teacher. Perhaps you've heard that before. I have. very fine lady said, I don't need to study the Word anymore. I don't read the Bible anymore. I know all that. I just let the Spirit teach me. Well, good luck with that one. <laughs> Some of these folks put no effort in it all. No intellectual effort in it all. And they feel like God is going to whisper in their ear all that they need to know frankly they come across as uneducated hay seeds with bad hair and too much makeup this has been believe it or not it has been most destructive not the bad hair and the makeup but the intellectual hayseed part <laughs> that's been destructive far more than we realize observing some of these folks many non-christians have gotten the idea that in order to become a christian one has to first abandon the intellect and act against reason. And as a result, they want nothing to do with Christianity. And frankly, if that was true, that you had to abandon the intellect and act against reason, I wouldn't want anything to do with it either. But it's not true. Fortunately, that is not true. That's not what this passage or any other passage in the Word of God even implies. My son David just returned from an economics conference in another state where the majority of those who were in attendance were atheists. Based upon his very presence at this gathering of highly intellectual people, they just assumed that David was an atheist as well. As he engaged them in conversation over the lunch table or the dinner table, they were very impressed with his intellect. I'm proud of that. But when they began to rail against theism, and more specifically... Christianity, David calmly and thoughtfully presented the other side. One man who was about 20 years, David's senior, even commented, wait a minute, wait a minute, son, it sounds like that you're arguing for Christianity. <laughs> and David said, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what I'm doing. And the guy said, you mean you're a Christian? And David said, yes, I am. This guy was stunned. He and David continued the conversation long after dinner that night, well into the wee hours of the morning. And finally the fellow admitted, I've got to tell you, he said, I thought all Christians were idiots. And I'm cleaning up what he said. (laughs) And he said, you've just proved me wrong. And he continued to listen. As David presented the case for Christ... In a way that was acceptable to this highly intelligent, highly educated, very intellectual man. I do have to echo something that Mike said a minute ago, particularly about Dan and his ministry. It's, it's because of Dan's ministry that he was able to do that. And not every church has, has a Dan available to them. And I would highly recommend you, I, I seldom do this and you know this, but I would highly recommend you to invite any young person that you know that doesn't currently have a church to come on Sunday morning to that class and to become equipped. I'm proud of my son David, 20 years old and he's talking to a 45 year old, very highly, very educated, very staunch atheist and is able to get him to at least listen and they're going to continue the conversation. Even now they've set up times where they're going to continue the conversation. Listen, some of the things that go on in, on TV, and you know what I'm talking about. This anti-intellectual stuff, this intellectual hayseed stuff is not helpful. That's not Christianity. We do not have to check our intellect at the door in order to appreciate Jesus Christ. In fact, the opposite. We need to think. So don't take this passage to say anything but that. We still need to think. Some of these non-Christians who have a limited exposure to Christianity, do feel like we're all intellectual hayseeds. But what he didn't know with all of his learning was that far from Christianity being a faithful faithful buffoons, many of the brightest minds in history have either been theists or or more specifically Christians, Pascal, Francis Bacon, Copernicus, Louis Pasteur, Isaac Newton, who invented calculus to help him with his physics. Now how about that? (laughs) He also discovered gravity in his spare time. John Dalton, the father of atomic theory. Michael Faraday, one of the greatest physicists of all time. Gregory Mendel, the father of genetics. James Simpson, the father of anesthesiology. And that's just a very abbreviated list from the scientific community. We could go on in the, in the field of literature. Shakespeare, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Milton, Lewis, Tolkien, Chesterton. Just to scratch the surface... We could spend the rest of our time today just listing the great minds in history that have been Christian. In fact, most of the greatest scientists in history have been Christians. This past week, a young child asked one of the presidential candidates up in New Hampshire what his view was on Darwinian evolution. It's that kind of where they're walking through the crowd and somebody shouted this out. And the candidate answered, and it was caught on tape, and I paraphrase his answer He said to this child, there are some holes, I think, in that theory. Then he said, in my particular state, we teach both evolution and creationism because we feel like you're smart enough to look at the evidence and decide for yourself. Right after he said that, someone, presumably the child's mother, yelled out, ask him why he doesn't believe in science. And I'm sure the person who yelled that out considers herself to be intellectually superior. But she doesn't understand the first thing about science or Christianity to make a statement like that. The fact that some scientists appear to be at war with God doesn't mean that science is at war with God. My undergraduate work was done in biology. I appreciate science. One thing I'll tell you is that science simply observes the natural world and then it has made some attempt to understand it. That's the job of science. Science isn't at war with God. Science observes the world that God created. And the largest part of the greatest scientists of all times have recognized that fact. The passage that we begin to study today does not argue that in order to accept Christianity, one has to abandon the intellect. But it does teach that the intellect should not be idolized. And that the intellect alone cannot lead one to God. The Holy Spirit is an indispensable part of the process. We should never forget that. So we're not jettisoning the intellect, but we don't want to idolize the intellect either. And we need to forever recognize that without the Holy Spirit, we could never have come to God in the first place. We are, after all, fallen human beings. One thing that Paul will argue in our passage is that what passed for wisdom in the Corinthian culture, was anything but wisdom. And by extension, we could say what passes for wisdom in our culture often is anything but wisdom. Idolatry of the intellect, which is what was going on in Corinth, is a result of pride. And you'll recall that the Corinthian culture was a very prideful culture. One of the underlying issues, as Paul writes 1 Corinthians is that the culture was influencing the church far more than the church was influencing the culture. And Paul was convinced that Corinthian pride had skewed their view of wisdom. And he must correct it. Once again, Paul is not arguing against biblical wisdom here. He's not going to argue against the intellect. Those are all fine things. And again, I appreciate wisdom. Believe me, I appreciate wisdom. I appreciate the intellect. But Paul's going to argue that we shouldn't idolize the intellect. And if we do not keep things like education, the intellect, and wisdom, worldly wisdom, in their proper perspective, it's going to negatively affect our function and unity in the church and also our ability to function as a light to our community. And that's what's happening in Corinth. They had idolized the intellect, and it was hurting the unity within the church And therefore, the church was not able to go out into their community and be a light to the community, because frankly, the church looked just like the community. Read along with me in our extended passage. We won't be covering all this today. Actually, we'll just be covering the first two verses. But I want you to get the entirety of the paragraph before we begin the specifics of these verses. Paul says, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then in verse 26, "...for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God." Then in verse 30, But by this doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, just as it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now just a casual reading of that passage, I think you'd probably agree with me, that's a challenging passage. To me it certainly is. Very challenging passage, but if we break it down into smaller groups, and then look at it again as a whole, it's going to make a lot of sense to us. If we really think about it, though, it's not that hard to see how a crucified Messiah or a crucified and dying God would sound foolish to the Gentiles. How can one be powerful if one suffers the ultimate penalty from Rome? It sounds to me, or sounds to these Gentiles, rather, like Rome was God, not Jesus Christ because didn't Rome win that day? At least on the surface, it might have looked like it to them. It's equally easy to see how a crucified Messiah would be a stumbling block to the Jews. The Greek term that's used in verse 23 that's translated stumbling block in the New American Standard is actually the term skandalon. It's where we get our English term scandal. It was scandalous to the Jews that their Messiah would be crucified. That wasn't on their radar at all. A crucified Messiah to them was a contradiction in terms. They were looking for a conquering Messiah, not a crucified Messiah, not a suffering servant. They had missed the point of Isaiah 53 entirely. As to the pagan idea of a crucified God, they ridiculed it. There's a drawing that's been found in a palace on the Palatine Hill in Rome, one of the most wealthy areas of Rome, at least in the first century. And in this palace, they have uncovered a drawing, a painting. And the painting is of a slave falling down before a donkey, a crucified donkey. And there's an inscription underneath it that says, Alexamenos worships his God. The first century Romans ridiculed the idea of a crucified Jesus Christ being worth anything. But that's human wisdom. And that's missing the point. That's allowing pride to cloud the intellect. In this extended paragraph, Paul makes it clear that the cross stands in absolute, uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. Even though it might not make make sense to those Gentiles who thought that they were really intelligent. It might not make sense to the Jews who really wanted some sort of sign and couldn't fathom a crucified Messiah. It might not make sense to those pagans who would make a drawing like that of a crucified donkey and a slave and ridicule Christianity that way. But that's human wisdom. That's wisdom. And by human wisdom, I mean this. I mean wisdom that has been clouded by pride. I'm not talking about true wisdom. I'm not talking about biblical wisdom here. Sophia. We're not talking about that. We're talking about wisdom that has been clouded by pride. We see it all over the landscape today. I don't typically name names, but when Richard Dawkins is the name that needs to be named, I don't mind. The Oxford scholar. This man has degrees as long as my arm, but he is so clouded by pride that sometimes the things he says make a person just want to chuckle. How could you say these kind of things? Just really ridiculous, arguing against reason and not even realizing it. Christopher Hitchens, who made be leaving this earth fairly soon. So prideful, so arrogant, so strong in his convictions that he doesn't even want Christians praying for him. Ridicules us. Ridicules the fact that many of us are praying for his salvation. But in this paragraph, Paul makes it very, very clear that the cross, and this is where it all happens, doesn't it? This is the centerpiece, the central event in all human history was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's where it is, that the cross stands in absolute, uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. Not to wisdom, but to human wisdom. Wisdom that has been clouded by arrogance and pride. To the fallen mind, no matter how high the IQ, the cross just makes no sense. In the first place, most ancients didn't participate in any form of religion in order to be saved, as we might view salvation or as the ancient Jews would have viewed it. Their participation in religion was to save them from things like poverty, and illness, and war, and infertility. At the famous Oracle of Delphi, ancient records indicate that the questions that were asked the oracle there were along the lines not of, how can I receive eternal life? How can I please the gods? How can I live on forever? But more everyday concerns like, How can I become a parent? Shall I succeed? One inscription says, Where shall I go to settle? Will the harvest be bountiful? Those were the things that they were interested in. Their concerns were strictly about the affairs of this life and how they would turn out. Aristotle is reported to have said, In order to succeed, we need to ask the right questions. Their problem was, in all of their worldly wisdom, they were asking the wrong questions. So how can they possibly get the right answers? If that's the depth of your questions, you've got a problem. I introduce all that to say that this thinking had made its way into the church at Corinth and had clouded the gospel message itself. It was clouding wisdom in Corinth. It had upset the unity in the church at Corinth and had threatened their public testimony. If the best that Christianity has to offer is a better life now, but after this life is finished, it's all over, then we, as Paul did say, he will say later, are among the people to be most pitied. If that's all it is, a better harvest, nicer home, better car, that that's all Christianity can offer me, can offer any of us, then we're to be pitied. Pride clouds judgment on all things, especially spiritual things. The issue here is not that a high IQ is bad. It's that a high IQ can be a negative when that high IQ motivates pride rather than humility and resists the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is communicating truth to us. That's when a high IQ can be a negative. In verse 18 specifically, Paul says, "...for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are, be, who are being saved it is the power of God." Paul's going to place the heart of his message in this extended paragraph right at the very first verse, right at the beginning of the paragraph. For those who have pridefully rejected God, those who are on their way to eternal destruction, the concept of the cross is foolishness. The Greek term is moria. It's closely associated with the Greek term from which we get moron or moronic. For those who... On the other hand, who have humbly received this message, it's the power of God. It's not really an issue between high high IQ and low IQ, between high intellect and low intellect, between education and non-education. The issue is between pride and humility. Those who have a high IQ, who are prideful, are going to have their intellect clouded And their wisdom will end up being nonsensical. You can have someone with a lower IQ, though, and some humility. And that person is going to come out way ahead. The issue is not IQ. You don't have to have an IQ to be a Christian. But what you do have to have, Paul is going to say throughout this paragraph, is humility. You've got to realize that we were born with a problem. That we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Now, that takes humility. There are some people that just will not fathom that. They will not tolerate it. They'll not allow it. You're telling me that I need a Savior? Who are you to tell me that? God's the one that tells you that, and I'm going to tell you who else tells you that. Your own conscience, if you would not suppress it. Your own conscience is telling you you've got got a need that you can't meet on your own. But if you're prideful, you say, no, not me. Maybe those people over there, maybe they need that. But not me, I don't need that. Listen, if there was one thing that I had to boil it all down, one thing that sends people to hell, it's pride. That's it. It's stubborn pride. It's not the intellect. It's all there. matter of fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul's going to tell us there's enough evidence out there that anyone with a normal intellect can come to Christ. You don't have to have a high intellect to come to Christ. But again, please, let's don't act like we have lower intellects. That's not the point of this passage. That's silly. But you don't have to have a high intellect. You have to have humility. So there's two categories of people here. Those who have pridefully rejected God for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. If you're prideful, you don't want to hear about a God who loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son that if you were to believe in him, you might have, ever have, have everlasting life. You don't even have to, want to hear about that. That's silliness to you but it's because you're prideful. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing, foolishness. It's, it's moronic. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. It really has nothing to do with intelligence. That's to do with humility. If there's a concept that's all over 1 Corinthians... It's a concept of the destructiveness of pride. The cross is true wisdom, not the philosophie de jour. There's a French word. <laughs> I've been trying to work a French word in for a long time to justify all those hours. And most of you already knew what it meant, didn't you? The cross is true wisdom, not some philosophy, not, not some of the, one of the latest guests on Oprah, not the author of the latest New York Times bestseller. It's the cross that is true wisdom. The cross is true wisdom, and the sooner all of us accept that, the better we're going to be. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that very message. The message he was telling them is the message that we should learn today, humility of the mind. Then in verse 19, Paul moves on to validate his point with an Old Testament passage. This happened to be our scripture reading this morning. Paul is going to quote it from a different version, from the Septuagint, but he says this, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Paul's going back to Isaiah to make his point. In that context, back in Isaiah, the Jews had got a little haughty, and God through the prophet is saying, Don't do that. Who are you to think that you can outsmart God? Can't be done. But what Paul is doing is he's taking that passage and applying it to this situation. He says, By means of the cross, God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Again, that's wisdom that has been clouded by pride. The cross is not something that worldly wisdom would have even considered. One more time, as we're about to finish, I have to say it again. I don't want you to leave here with a me- uh, the wrong impression. Neither here nor anywhere in this paragraph is Paul arguing against wisdom per se. But he's arguing against, watch, the wisdom of the wise. And he almost is saying that in a sarcastic way. Biblical wisdom is the appropriate application of truth to a particular situation. This kind of wisdom is good. And it's a wonderful thing. It's the counterfeit wisdom. The wisdom of the philosophers of the age... That Paul is arguing against. The kind of wisdom that would say that God loving the world, give me a break. The kind of wisdom that would say God sent his son to die for us, give me a break. That's the kind of wisdom in air quotes that Paul is speaking about here. The kind of wisdom that's going to send you to hell. That's not really wisdom at all. And again, in its original context, Isaiah chapter 29, this is a warning passage to Israel... Not to try to match which with God. Who are we to try to outsmart an omniscient God anyway? I don't care what your IQ is. It's not close to omniscience. Omniscience means that God knows all that's knowable. And that he's always known it. God has never had to learn anything. He doesn't have to learn anything. He's always known everything that's knowable. And we think we're going to argue with him? We think we're going to outsmart him? We think because we have an IQ that might be 10 or 20% higher than someone else that we're going to approach God's IQ. There's no number for God's IQ. It's infinite. Who do we think we are that we're going to outsmart God? That's what sends people to hell. They're trying to outsmart him. Their pride is what's sending them to hell. Yes, you have to be humble to accept the cross of Jesus Christ. You do. You do. You have to realize in humility that that I need something that I can't supply myself. I need salvation and I can't supply it. And you have to accept the historical record that Jesus of Nazareth did exist. He was crucified in the first century by the Romans. And the biblical record that he died for our sins. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. We have to humble ourselves and accept that. Well, a lot more on this in the weeks to come, but but let me close by saying this. Ordinarily, high IQ is a blessing. We don't like to have that. But do you know when a high IQ can actually be a negative? When that high IQ is combined with pride. The result of intelligence plus arrogance is, according to this passage, foolishness. It's moronic. That woman who yelled out to the presidential candidate last week, ask him why he doesn't believe in science. She may have a high IQ, I don't know. But her question betrays her pride. And that pride is smothering whatever intelligence she may have. Don't allow pride either to interrupt your spiritual growth or to send you to hell.